Hello, listeners. I have another special episode to share with you today. I'm sharing another great podcast I've just been made aware of. It's called The Closer from the team at Project Brazen and hosted by financial journalist Amy Keene. The show focuses on pulling out the high-octane emotion and exponential stakes that underscore today's biggest acquisition or investment headlines. In the episode I'm sharing today, the host takes you inside the final days of Toys R Us with Lauren Hirsch, the reporter who first revealed the iconic company's impending bankruptcy. You can expect to hear juicy tidbits around what drove the company out of business. Check out The Closer and subscribe today on your favorite podcast catcher. And thanks again for listening. If you were a kid at any point in the last, let's say, 60 years or so, there's a decent chance you remember visiting a Toys R Us store. I remember being pretty young myself and frankly, probably only a few feet high. So going into Toys R Us felt more like entering this teeming toy palace than it did a big box store. There were aisles upon aisles of toys. There were the Easy Bake Ovens, the Cabbage Patch Dolls, and Barbie everything. It had to be a special occasion for my parents to bring me and my siblings there in the first place. But we all knew this one thing, that getting to go into the store usually meant that if we behaved, we just might walk out with something new. Reporter Lauren Hirsch remembers something similar. And I remember my mom at the end of the trip to the store saying, I'm so proud of you. You didn't ask for one toy because I was always a very well-behaved kid. So I just was kind of, you know, kind of waiting for my mom to decide which toy she would give me. But what I honestly remember the most are the ads. I don't want to grow up on a Toys R Us kid. They got a million toys and Toys R Us that I can play with. You know, the famous jingle, I'm a Toys R Us kid. At the giraffe. It wasn't even kind of a question as to whether or not it would ever be around. It was such a permanent part of our existence and, you know, just iconic in terms of its place and in our assumption it would always be there. Until it wasn't the end of an era, one of the most recognizable names in American retail is closing its doors today. John Schumo has more on the end of Toys R Us. I tell you, I'll always remember Toys R Us as the store where my children had a complete and total meltdown every time we went there. I guess people don't enjoy that anymore. A disappointing end to what was once the world's biggest toy store. When Toys R Us closed its doors in the U.S. for good in 2018, it was an emotional day for parents and for kids. The toy store had beat out all the others for decades, and now it was bankrupt. Along with its store closures went the chance to experience part of the magic of being a kid. And it all happened fast. There was no plan. It was just like chaos, and it just like tumbled into bankruptcy. So what took down Toys R Us? As a reporter, you want to have an impact, of course, but but it was a little bit, you know, everyone's like blaming me for killing Toys R Us. That story begins much earlier, and it involves one of the most notable leverage buyouts in retail history. So that was an odd experience, I would say. We'll be right back with the story. Welcome back to The Closer. My guest this episode is journalist Lauren Hirsch. 
I'm a business reporter at The New York Times, and while Toys R Us was going bankrupt, I covered this story at CNBC. The story of Toys R Us begins all the way back at the end of the Second World War with one man. So Charles Lazarus is known as, you know, one of the country's, maybe the world's greatest merchants. And he knew how to appeal to his ideal customers. Over the years, I have tried to teach children to say, I need it rather than I want it. Nobody really has to buy the product. So it's kind of a happy consumer. Lazarus's first foray into retail started in 1948 in Washington, D.C. A lot of his friends were having children. It was the post-war baby boom. And he decided to open up a crib and baby furniture store. But he quickly moved on from baby gear. This was stuff parents usually only bought once. And he got into the toy business. He knew that children tire of their toys and their stuffed animals really quickly. So if you build a store devoted to toys, you're going to get kids and obviously therefore parents coming in frequently to constantly replenish their supplies. So he created Toys R Us. He infamously, you know, the R in Toys R Us, it's backwards. And that's because he wanted to mimic what it would look like if a child was writing Toys R Us, you know, that kind of childhood lore, which he really, he understood. And the people who sold products into Toys R Us, they just loved him. I'm imagining an almost Walt Disney-like ability to tap into, like, everybody's inner child. It's a, it's a total Walt Disney thing. And right, listen, like Walt Disney also was very, very rich. He, you know, it's it, it was a, you know, a wonderful combination of understanding what children want. And yes, you know, and understanding how to monetizing it. And he was both a great businessman uh, with a very keen sense of the kind of store that he needed to create to, you know, feed the children. A big part of this success came not only from understanding his customers, but also from fostering strong ties with the toy makers. Toys R Us is kind of the most special thing about it was its relationship with the toy companies. And so what he was able to do was he got exclusives. He got toy companies to promise they would only sell certain products in its stores. And that kind of made it such that if you wanted a certain toy, you you had to go to Toys R Us. So he took these really big box stores, these large chunks of real estate, and grew them across the country. And so all of a sudden, Toys R Us became this omnipresent experience throughout the country. And if you wanted a toy, you knew the first place that you had to go was Toys R Us. Lazarus steered the company through a decades-long expansion, at home and abroad. It was operating in 35 countries at its peak. He launched a sister brand, Babies R Us, took the company public, and by the early 90s, he created a proper toy empire that beat out just about any other toy retailer. It was the category killer. By 1994, though, Lazarus was in his 70s and ready to retire. He stayed on the board as chairman for four more years, and his successor was picked. There was no immediate CEO that followed him that had the same kind of relationships, the same kind of, you know, understanding of the business. The business had been Lazarus's imagination brought to life. Even an experienced CEO couldn't quite replicate that. The industry all of a sudden started to really change. Obviously, the first thing we think of is e-commerce. You had the dot-com boom. The dot-com boom put a lot of pressure on stores like Toys R Us to adapt their in-store offerings for an online crowd. So in response, in 2000, Toys R Us signed a first-of-its-kind deal with Amazon to sell toys online. 
But the relationship quickly dissolved over a difference of opinion on just how exclusive the arrangement was, and it ended in a lengthy and expensive legal battle. So not only did that deal go awry, it also became a huge distraction for the company. It was a distraction from an other equally big threat that had been growing since the mid-90s, the rise of big box stores like Walmart and Target. Their big strength was their ability to sell products on the cheap. And so all of a the sudden, they were able to fight Toys R Us on the price of its toys. Yeah, Lauren, I'm imagining, you know, Saturday morning, a parent's got errands to run. They've promised a little whomever that he or she could pick out a toy. But that parent could also pick up toilet paper, maybe some groceries, if they did it all at Walmart. So what Walmart was super smart on is it knew that if it could use a toy to get you into its store, it could get you to shop for a million other things. And what Toys R Us was supposed to do in response to that learning from Walmart was make its store a place where you still had to go because it's this wonderful, magical experience. But the problem was Toys R Us had gotten so big and so powerful, and it really hadn't needed to invest in its stores in that way to become so big and powerful that it didn't really realize times had changed. It just never reacted. And so therefore, it never really gave shoppers sufficient reason to go there versus Walmart, where not only could you pick up five pieces of products, but the toy is probably going to be cheaper. And in resting on the strengths of what the Toys R Us brand once was, the business lost sight of its customers, both the toy makers and the people coming into the store to buy a toy. First, it just didn't have those same kind of relationships that Lazarus worked really hard to foster. You know, those relationships are dinners, they're calls, they're, you know, how's your son doing? It didn't have that. And it didn't invest. It, it took its customers for granted. The other element, frankly, is it had a lot of men in management. Its prime customers were women shopping for their kids. And I would speak to former employees who would say, you know, they kind of didn't get it. All of this added up to years of grim earnings. And by the early 2000s, investors on Wall Street were souring on the company. Its stock had dropped. You know, investors were worried about its competition that it was seeing from the big box stores. They weren't convinced that it really had kind of a strong future ahead. And it was, frankly, flailing. It had, it had lost its way. It was still this iconic store. It was still omnipresent. But it wasn't as, you know, almost seductive as it had once been. And, and that became a real challenge for the store. A challenge for Toys R Us, but it was an opportunity for a trio of investors. In 2005, three firms, KKR, Bain Capital, and the real estate investment trust company Vornado, put together $6.6 billion to take the toy company private. There was almost kind of a ritualistic game plan that private equity firms did when it came to retailers. One was... Back in those days, the only way a retailer can grow is buy more stores. So you buy a company with a great brand and you say, great, a really easy way to grow sales is to simply build more stores. So that's plan number one. Plan number two is there's real estate and real estate can be very valuable. At the time, the real estate industry was very different. Malls were considered to be a valuable place for real estate because people still went to malls. So the two private equity firms and Fornado, they wanted to grow the sales, monetize the real estate, and yes, do what every private equity firm does, which is slash costs all that it can, and then reap the rewards on the other side. Another feature of these deals, debt. 
often lots of debt. Private equity investors will finance the takeover by raising debt secured by the assets of the company they're buying. But instead of assuming that debt themselves, the target company will hold that liability. The idea is that as you turn around the struggling company, the company pays down the debt, and then you, the investor, reap the upside when you either sell the company or take it public. The downside, though, is that the cost of servicing that debt is often an expensive burden for the company trying to right itself. And in the case of Toys R Us, KKR, Bain, and Vornado added about $5 billion in debt to the company through this takeover. So instead of investing in e-commerce or improving the in-store experience, Toys R Us now had to pay down this debt. I actually spoke to someone who quit shortly after the deal was signed because he was like, there's just no way a company is going to be able to survive this much debt on this profitability. This debt became effectively an albatross on the company. It couldn't make any of the investments that it needed to do to respond to the big box retailers like Walmart. It couldn't respond to Amazon. Right. And that was because any available cash that the company did have most of that available cash was going to servicing that debt, which I think at one point was a cost of about $400 million a year. Yeah. And the problem is it becomes this, you know, you're just circling the drain, right? You're just trying to survive enough to pay the debt. You don't have any capacity to think about what it means, you know, what it means to actually grow. Meanwhile, the kids the business depended on, the kids Charles Lazarus had convinced needed toys, they were also changing. So there was this really fascinating dynamic where effectively kids became older, younger. That sounds odd, but what that means is kids grew out of toys faster. There were video games. There were other things to do. And so that frankly disrupted like the business model itself, your core customers aging out much faster. It was an existential moment for the business. How does it respond to this generation of kids? How does it better serve their parents or the people shopping for them online? And how does it do all of this while paying down hundreds of millions of dollars of debt each year? The next move was for the investors to try to put the company back on the public market. They were going to go public in 2010. You know, it didn't look like they were going to get the valuation that they needed or wanted. The market was a tough time for IPOs. And then it kind of infamously just floated out there. They never really officially said what the plan was going to be after it didn't go public. The private equity firms didn't really talk about it a lot publicly. It was just kind of there. And it was so big. And ultimately what they did do was they wrote it down to zero. Basically, Toys R Us kind of withered under their ownership because they knew they weren't going to make money off of it. They knew they weren't going to be able to take it public. There was no one to sell it to. So it just faded out of sight uh, while its value deteriorated. Toys R Us was a write-off for the firms, but it was still a company. It had real operations, real debt to be paid. So fast forward a few years. Around 2017 was when retail really dropped off a cliff. All of those retail deals in, you know, the mid-2000s by private equity firms were, were turning sour. They were going bankrupt because the industry had changed and these companies never reacted and they had a lot of debt and they had to go under. So Toys R Us's owners knew that and they were trying to restructure the business. And basically, when you're structuring a debt, you go to lenders and you say, can we just restrike this deal a little bit? It might, you know, it might be a little bit of a haircut for you, but it's better for all of us to do that rather than let it go bankrupt. No one wants that. 
problem was they were unable to get lenders to work with them on a kind of deal and a kind of deal to to restructure. And they realized, oh, like, we're going to have to file for bankruptcy. Now, filing for bankruptcy is one of those things that sounds terrible, and obviously it's not great, but it's not always a death knell for a company. There's, you know, Macy's filed for bankruptcy, merged. We all still shop at Macy's. So that doesn't have to be the end. So yes, I caught wind of the fact that they were considering bankruptcy. And it just wasn't on anyone's radar screen. And people weren't expecting it. And one of the reasons why that's a problem is those who didn't expect it included the suppliers. It included the toy companies that that sold into Toys R Us. So I find out that Toys R Us is weighing bankruptcy. I'm pretty surprised because, as I said, it wasn't on my radar screen. Lauren had just left a job at Reuters and was about to start at CNBC. But between jobs, she gets this tip. So she calls up her new editor. And I was like, I don't really know you that well. Super excited to start my new job. Just FYI, like, I have this tip. What do I do? He was just like, don't do any, because I couldn't write it yet. So he was like, just like, sit on it. And it was so horrible. <laughs> like, because as, you know, you're as a reporter, like, you don't want to lose a story. So I remember like doing a cycling class, just like thinking about Toys R Us, being like, oh, like, I hope no one gets the story. I hope no one gets the story. And then I also couldn't like, ch- you know, I had it, but I didn't like fully have it because I didn't want to chase it too much and like to let other reporters know what I was, you know, because sometimes when you're chasing a story, other people find out that you're chasing and it spreads. Then her first day on the new job comes around. Our office was in New Jersey. And I remember getting off the shuttle in New Jersey and calling another source to confirm the story and be like, hey, it's my first day at CNBC. Just FYI, like, I'm hearing this. I also pre-wrote the story. I, like, bought a new computer. I think I needed a new computer anyway. I didn't just buy it for this story. But, like, I, like, had the story ready to go, like, in my week in between jobs. Anyway, yeah, so I... like an editor's dream, Lauren. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm very well-behaved. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I'm very well-behaved. So, anyway, I think I may have ended up running it my second day at the job. So I ran it and it was just like an odd experience. Just, you know, it was odd just like breaking the story at, at this at this new job. The biggest toy store chain in the world. And one, two, I'm a Toys R Us kid. Now facing a very grown-up problem. So file the largest toy store chain in the U.S. Toys R Us has filed for bankruptcy protection. The Chapter 11 filing overnight is among the largest ever by a specialty retailer. Now it comes as. But now they remain open, but 64,000 employees at 1,600 stores may wonder whether the exit sign could, at some point, be for them. And it was the craziest reaction I have ever had to a story. We'll be back with Lauren Hirsch after the break. In 2017, Lauren Hirsch was taking a bit of time off between reporting jobs when she got a tip. Toys R Us was thinking about filing for bankruptcy. The story was hers to break, and it would happen on her first day on the job in the CNBC newsroom. You know, usually when you write about one company acquiring another company, you know, a stock might move. And maybe if you write about a potential bankruptcy, the bonds will take a hit. But like the bonds just dropped, like dropped massively. And there was shock. Like no one believed it. I had people calling me like, this isn't true. Like this is wrong. And 
all of a sudden, all of the toy companies who had no idea this company was struggling were like, well, I am not going to give you my toys because if you go bankrupt, I don't get my money. And so all of a sudden, the next three weeks were this like complete frenzy where it was effectively a run on the bank. No toys would ship their their products to, to Toys R Us. They were terrified that it was going to go bankrupt. And again, this kind of goes back to this idea that they didn't have those relationships with, with the suppliers, with the toys companies. So there wasn't that trust. The plan had been to file after the holiday season, uh, which is always what you want to do because the holiday season is like the most important time for a retailer. It's when you make the majority of your sales. That's definitely true for Toys R Us. But because, frankly... I broke the story and I unintentionally caused a run on the bank. It filed for bankruptcy in three weeks. So, you know, usually when you file for bankruptcy, you want to have a plan to emerge. You kind of work with your creditors like, all right, like we're going to go into bankruptcy and we're going to do A, B and C. And this is how we'll get out of bankruptcy. Like there was no plan. It was just like chaos and it just like tumbled into bankruptcy. As a reporter, you want to have an impact, of course. But it was a little bit, you know, everyone's like blaming me for killing Toys R Us. So that was um, an odd experience, I would say. Uh, can we just stay for a minute on how you felt at the time? Well, I was, I mean, I was very stressed <laughs> because I felt really, I mean, I shouldn't have felt terrible because I did my job, you know. And, and, and frankly, the public should know, like, People should know when a company is is weighing restructuring. So I didn't do anything wrong, but it was a very odd experience because I'd never really been a, a part of the story, and all of a sudden I become a part of the story, and that's an uncomfortable position for many journalists because you're just trying to kind of let people know what's happening. You're not necessarily trying to be a part of the thing that's happening. So you break the story that Toys R Us is considering restructuring, doing restructuring through bankruptcy. They're going to do it after the holiday season. Your story comes out and they actually end up in bankruptcy court in just three weeks. How did this go for the company? Yes. Yeah, so every time a company goes bankrupt, its lawyers go in and they tell the story. How did we get here? Who are we? And at the same time, right, you're kind of making a pitch. You're making a pitch to your creditors. You're making a pitch to the bankruptcy judge who ultimately has to decide whether or not he or she will let you emerge from court. And what the lawyers did was they really, you know, they they appealed to uh, people's memories of the stories and the nostalgia factor. So they got there and they literally sang uh, the Toys R Us jingle. The lawyers sang the jingle. Yes, they sang the jingle. It was working with Kirkland Ellis, who is, you know, one of the top, if not the top, bankruptcy law firms. So they're an excellent law firm, but I think some people were just a little bit concerned. A jingle isn't going to get you out of this problem. And honestly, I think that even its approach to that first day of, you know, it's fine. We're Toys R Us. Like, let's sing you the song. It wasn't enough. Like, you know, that was kind of like the story of Toys R Us. Like, that's how it got into that place. Like, no, it wasn't fine. Like, they had too much debt. They couldn't pay it. Like, they were in bankruptcy court. So outside of appealing to everyone's nostalgia for the Toys R Us brand, what was what was the company's strategy? What was the plan? 
The plan almost in every retail bankruptcy is emerge leaner. So you close the stores that are unprofitable. You hopefully get rid of the debt. Um, maybe you sell off certain divisions that aren't making money. Um, but to do any of that, uh, Toys R Us needed the support of its creditors. So it needed to have an amazing holiday season. It was the most important holiday season of its life uh, because it needed to keep its creditors at bay. Come out on the other side, just a little bit leaner, or maybe a lot of bit leaner, but stronger. So that was the plan. What actually happened after that holiday season? You know, upon reflection, it was actually pretty obvious, I think, to a lot of people what, what was going to happen, which was Target, Walmart, they had been vying for Toys R Us's business for a while. Toys may not make a ton of money, but they're a huge um, tool to bring people into your stores. So what they did was they just slashed their prices. They made toys as cheap as possible. And, you know, I'm sure no Walmart Target would ever say this explicitly. But what it appeared to be was, you know, let's put a, a nail in this coffin. Let's this thing is on the on the floor. Let's just give it one more kick and see what happens. And it was very hard for them to compete with those prices. It was a struggling retailer that had never invested in itself. So it was the most important holiday season of its life. And it ultimately ended up being its last holiday season of its life. The company calculated it would run out of cash just a few months later. It was, you know, it was just exceptionally grim. At what point did the company realize it wasn't likely to come out of bankruptcy, that that it would have to close for good? They, like anyone, wanted to come out of this the other side, but they had creditors who basically believed this company was worth more dead than alive. And bankruptcy can be a powerful tool to get rid of debt, to get rid of real estate. Uh, but it's also a very vulnerable position because you, you are now you're now negotiating with creditors who, you know, like it or not, it's capitalism. They're in there to make money. They're not in there because they care about the future of Toys R Us. And the creditors thought, you know, kill it, sell it for pieces. And they realize, all right, we have to, we have to liquidate. Like this thing is never going to come out of bankruptcy court. The company announced plans to liquidate in March of 2018. And by June, it had closed its U.S. stores. How did the staff react? It was an incredibly stressful time for employees, you know, as as one can imagine. You know, you, you don't know what the next day is going to bring. The idea of working for a bankrupt company is really hard. You know, I remember talking to a source close with Toys R Us saying, you know, there's a lot of frustration with you. Like the creditors are mad because they feel like you're not giving them updated information. The employees feel like you're not being straight with them. And my source was like, well, sure, but we have no idea what's going on. And, you know, I talk a lot about how Toys R Us had kind of lost the thing that made it special. And that is true. But there were a number of employees, a number that I spoke to that still really loved Toys R Us. And when it ultimately went bankrupt and when it ultimately liquidated, they were devastated. Of course, it's upsetting to lose your job, but there was also an emotional pain. There was literally a 
a Facebook page, the Dead Giraffe Society, where uh, employees kind of, you know, had their memories. I was invited and then disinvited, and I understand why. The day oh, the wow. Toys R Us, yeah, the day the Toys R Us like finally closed its door, one of the employees was like, "Come, like we're sharing our Toys R Us memories." And then she was like, "Well, maybe like." They won't want to see you. The guy understands. <laughs> um, so it was it was hard and upsetting, um, and you know, tragic. A lot of people lost their jobs, and that's always a terrible situation. Of all the deals that you cover, uh, looking back on this one, why is it one of your favorites? As a reporter, you can sometimes operate a little bit in a bubble where you're talking to sources and you're excited about your story, but like you don't know how much the broader world really values it or is paying attention. And everyone was paying attention to Toys R Us. Everyone loves Toys R Us. Everyone had a Toys R Us memory. Everyone was sad that it went away. And obviously, it's it's sad that it went away. So I don't celebrate that. But covering and being part of a story that like touched so many lives, and it honestly did, was a very special experience because you just, you realize covering bankruptcy and covering M&A, a lot of it's just like covering money moving. And you realize kind of the human impact of all of it. Um, and that was a really just gratifying experience for me. Mm-hmm. The brand itself or the company has, at least as I've been able to see, has tried to make a few different comebacks. What is to- the Toys R Us business that exists today? Like, it, to be quite literal about it, does it have employees? Who is in charge? What is Toys R Us today? They've sold the brands. I think they sold it to the creditors, actually, and I and, and I believe it may have changed hands one more time after that. You know, it's nothing. I, I hate to say that it's something. You know, and they'll have a little like a pop up in Macy's, but it's not. It will never be what it was. I mean, we I still get emails like Toys R Us is coming back, and I think <laughs> yes, there are people who own the Toys R Us brand who are trying to monetize it, but unfortunately, I don't think Toys R Us as we knew it as children is ever. Uh, coming back in that same form. Lauren, what happened with with Toys R Us is perhaps one of the better known examples of a big trend in retail and private equity from the past couple decades. Can you place the Toys R Us story in context for us? You know, I felt like my past, there were two years in which I felt like my, every day was just, you know, covering another retailer that had been acquired by a private private equity firm and went bankrupt, whether that's Neiman Marcus, J. Crew. Payless, Toys R Us, and they're all different shades, but it's all really the same story where a private equity firm saw a company, maybe it was publicly traded, you know, trading on the cheap. They, you know, saw gold and then everyone realized, oh, no, like this is this isn't working. Like, what do we do? Retail has changed and now we own these retailers, you know. Many private equity firms like refuse to acquire a retailer now. They're too scarred by that experience. The lesson, frankly, of, you know, the run of leverage buyouts onto these companies is be careful, understand your business, understand the risks, understand that, like, this is only going to work if everything stays the same. And that really happens. You mentioned that a lot of people blamed you and your story for supposedly killing Toys R Us. But I wonder if you have a view on who or what actually did. Was it private equity ownership or no longer having a figure like Charles Lazarus at the helm? Was it some other company or even like macroeconomic force? I think Walmart. I mean, everyone talks about Amazon um, and e-commerce and yes, but like I think it's became really hard for specialty retailers to compete against people like Walmart who could compete on price. And I'm not saying that that makes Walmart evil. I just, I think it changed the retail landscape. 
Um, of course, that's simplistic. There were other factors. You know, the people, I think the loss of trust that they had from their suppliers was a really big problem. And if toy companies could have continued to ship to, to Toys R Us, like that would have made a difference. But those things became so important because Walmart, you know, and big box retail disrupted the landscape. So I do think that sometimes people focus a little too much in Amazon and they forget the original disruptor, which was Walmart. And and just to close, what happened to Charles Lazarus? Well, the craziest thing about all of this is Lazarus, like shortly after Toys R Us liquidated, died. He was an old man at that point. But you talk about kind of like the tragedy that this story seems to have. And, you know, it's a leverage bio gone bad. That doesn't sound inherently tragic, but it, it was just it was just very sad. And it felt very poetic. It felt a little bit like there's something going on in the universe right now. Lauren, you've taught me so much today. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. And that's the end of our show. For more on the Toys R Us tale, head over to Brazen Plus on Apple Podcasts. Next week, we're looking at another side of the leverage buyout. What happens when you're the person calling the shots, but everyone, including your investors, thinks you've got it all wrong? That's next week on The Closer. The Closer is a production of Project Brazen in partnership with PRX. Our show is produced by Isabel Kirby McGowan and Ben Walsh. Marianne Gonzalez is our project manager, Olivia Mead is our researcher, and Lucy Woods is head of research. Golda Arthur is our showrunner, and Bradley Hope and Tom Wright are executive producers. Megan Dean is programming manager, and Ryan Ho is design lead. Our marketing consultant is Maggie Taylor, and Noor Abdel Latif is our podcast strategist. I'm Amy Keene. Thanks for listening.